Well, good morning. Thank you for the invitation. I'm going to talk about a novel of 1837 by Disraeli, a very critically neglected novel. If we look at the most recent book-length study of Disraeli's novels by Robert O'Kell, totaling nearly 600 pages, Venetia gets two, and we're told that critics have pretty much written off Venetia. That's correct. If you try and do any kind of archive search for articles on it, there's, there's scarcely anything there. Better still, there's a, a book from the mid-90s from Cambridge University Press by one of the Victorians, uh, Alfred, Andrew Elfenbein, and he describes Venetia as kooky, uh, K-O-O-K-Y, an adjective I will seek to use hereafter on every available occasion. <laughs> but I think it, it, it is indicative of the fact that, that this is a book that's had... Uh, near total crit uh, critical neglect. When I looked at Disraeli's work before, the one firm conclusion I could draw about it was that he needed the money, because that was clear, and he did need the money. But there's very little out there. I think, really, of the study, published studies, there's German study of the young Disraeli from 1960 and Paul Smith's study of Disraeli from the mid-90s, both of which identified both Henrietta Temple and Venetia as transitional works between the introspective work of the 1830s and then the more outward-looking um, Sybil and Coningsby. So the first thing I took a look at was, is this neglect reflected in the way it was received on its publication? And clearly not. This was a well-received novel. It is, so there's going to be various spoiler alerts here if anyone was planning it as summer holiday reading, but I just, okay. <laughs> I mean, for a start, it, it's divided into seven books, and the first four are all based in England. And then there's a set piece item at the end of book four, which is the only bit we'll be looking at in close detail, and then it relocates to Italy for the last three books, but with a return to England at the very end. And the critics who reviewed it at the time were, as you can see, entirely complimentary. There's a couple of quotes there from the New Monthly, uh, the Court Magazine and the Literary Gazette. And if we look here at the New Monthly Magazine and the Court Journal, so there doesn't seem to have been an issue around the way it was taken up by critics at the time. But the issue is, of course, did anyone buy it? Did it sell at all? And again, it was entirely respectable commercially. It was in print right throughout the 19th century. And if we look at a published edition of Disraeli's works from 18, collected works from 1853, the two recorded bestsellers were Venetia and Henrietta Temple. Now, bearing in mind, this is after both Coningsby and Sybil have been published. So we have a text that didn't have a problem with its critical reception at the time of its release, and clearly was commercially successful all the way through the 19th century. And if we look at what Disraeli himself thought of it, he seems to be perfectly happy with it as well. We look at letters from the first half of 1837, and this simply doesn't seem to be an issue. So, we have a widely neglected novel that was well received at the time, sold well at the time, and that the author himself was perfectly happy with. So maybe it does merit a little more attention than it's had hitherto. Why I think it's of interest to us this morning, firstly I think it illuminates Disraeli's position on class. There is a scene of class conflict which takes place outside the Houses of Parliament at the end of Book 4, and I think it's valuable to look at that in the context of what was happening around urban working class political organisation at the time. 
and for looking at, at the extent to which it's representative of a wider position that Israeli takes on social class. I think it's also interesting, a lot of people who've written on Israelis' novels have talked about a tension between the visionary and the expedient. And usually, if we were to do a head count of Disraeli's novels, we'd find that most of them load its sympathy, sympathy towards the visionary at the extent of the expense of the expedient. If we take Alroy from about 1833, as long as the hero is following the kind of the visionary line, he's fine. As soon as he starts getting enmeshed in more the kind of day-to-day realpolitik, it's, it gets much more complex for him and it, and it rebounds on him. But I think Venetia is interesting because for possibly the first time, the narrative sympathy is weighted more towards the expedient, the rational, the practical, than towards the visionary. And this is an interesting mood change in Disraeli's work. I don't think the tension is resolved there, because when we move into the, the, the Young England trilogy, and particularly through the character of Sidonia, the, the visionary is still hugely important. But I think Venetia is also of interest then, because of this unusual weighting towards the expedient rather than the visionary. And because of this, bearing in mind this was published in the year that Israeli became a, a member of parliament, and because of what it has to say about class politics, we can begin to think of Venetia as, as a useful political fable. Now, it has two main characters, Lord Cadurcus and Marmion Herbert, and they are loosely based on Byron and Shelley, respectively. Kind of need to stress the adverb loosely there, but there's enough of a connection there. We also have the eponymous heroine, Venetia, and then an additional character called George Cadurcus, who's the cousin to Lord Cadurcus. And at the end of the novel, when both Cadurcus and Herbert drown, with echoes of, of Shelley's death, it's George Cadurcus, the rational, expedient, practical man of action, who marries the heroine. Lord Cadurcus had proposed to her, but, but she'd, knocked him, she'd knocked him back. So we have movement movement from the visionary to the pragmatic and I've relocated here is where the kind of death of a poet angle comes in a movement from the Byronic to the classical uh, I'm taking in the same way that Cadurcus is very loosely based on Byron I'm taking equal license with the term Byronic uh, I think I'm certainly conflating it with romantic more widely and I think also including that flip side of romanticism in the gothic too because if we start with the gothic these are from the first couple of books. I mean, any of this could get lifted out and put in Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Adolfo, because this is Cherbury, where we have the first part of the book set, the English part, where Venetia lives alone with her mother, Lady Annabel. And we're told straight away it's an ancient Gothic building. There's a figure seen at one point. It turns out later it's Venetia's mother, past midnight, a tall figure and a light. And it wouldn't be a Gothic building if it didn't have an uninhabited wing, and it wouldn't be an uninhabited wing in a Gothic novel if it didn't have a forbidden chamber. <laughs> Eventually, when Venetia gets in there, it's great, because first there's an antechamber before the main room, and then in the main room there's a veil across something, and she, with faltering hand and tremulous breath, she pulls the veil back, and it's a portrait of her father. She is the natural daughter of the poet Marmion Herbert. But for anyone who's kind of got the basic vocabulary of how Gothic fiction works, Cherbury is, is a distinctly Gothic location. But if we move beyond the first four books and look at the last three, the entire aesthetic changes. So when they move to Italy, Herbert, 
Venetia's father, they hook up with him in Italy. It's all a bit far-fetched, candidly, but never mind. He's, re he's resident in Petrarch's house. And he's also, while he's in Italy, he's reading Plato. He and Lord Cadurcus get together, and as two poets, they greatly revere each other. So it's Herbert. Look, I mean, we're kind of into kind of philosophic disquisition here. The origin of existence, therefore, the first object to which a true philosopher proposes to himself. It's Lord Cadurcus who says, I believe in Plato. And in a conversation they have in Book 6, Chapter 8, they're praising uh, Plato and Epicurus and Aristotle, and the neoclassical poetry of Pope as well gets a look in. So we have, in, in, in some respects, two completely different texts. When we relocate from England to Italy, the Gothic is discharged, and it moves, if anything, towards this classical aesthetic. And we can, almost, we can begin to see that as analogous to the movement away from the visionary, the powered by the imagination of the early Gothic part of the novel, to then this much more powered by reason and the pragmatic, classical and neoclassical latter half of the novel. Okay, where we get this mood change then, the last incident before we have this change, happens at the end of book four. I need to give you narrative context here if you don't know the novel. But Cadurcus is carrying on a liaison with a married woman, Lady Monteagle, uh, based, it would seem, on Lady Caroline Lamb. This becomes uh, known to her husband, Lord Monteagle, and he challenges Cadurcus to a duel. They fight the duel, and Cadurcus shoots Lord Monteagle. He doesn't kill him, but he's not at all well, and has to be, has to be carried off. And this becomes public knowledge. So now, Cadurcus, who by this stage is a famous poet, very much in the Byronic mould, very romantic, slightly outrageous, he is suddenly the figure of widespread public opprobrium. He's, all the newspapers have turned on him. He goes to the Whigs Club, Brooks, and is disowned there. Uh, position this in, in where Disraeli has now positioned himself politically. And he goes down to Parliament to participate in a vote. And as he leaves Parliament, there is a mob there waiting for him. The mob is from the lower classes. Here's the section we're going to have to look at in detail. These are extracts from this chapter. So, Cadurcus is by himself, on his horse. We're told he has a countenance scornful and composed. And the, the lower class mob go for him. As we're told, a bolder ruffian rushed forward, seized his bridle. He struck the man over his eyes with his whip and at the same time touched his horse with his spur and the assailant which dashed to the ground. I think it's quite these physical, even visceral verb choices, you know, like rush, seized, struck, dashed. And we start to think, whose sympathy are we being encouraged to take here? We know Cadurcus, we've been with him all the way through the novel. The lower class mob is, is just homogenous. There's no sense of demarcating any of them as individuals. And if we move it forward to the next bit, which is his friends at the house, so he's still got a few allies in Parliament who'd watch with the keenest interest. They directed all the constables to rush to his succour. Hitherto they'd restrained the police, and the charge of the constables was well-timed. They laid about them with their staves. You might have heard the echo of many a broken crown. It's hard to read that and not to see that there's actual delectation in the violence being practised against the lower-class mob. And there's no question of us being encouraged to sympathise with them. Now, it's interesting in the first Gothic part of the novel, at one point the, the young Lord Cadurcus runs away after a squabble with his mother. And when they find him, he's in a gypsy encampment. 
But that's presented as benign and rural and kind, and there's a doe-eyed little gypsy girl called Baruna who adores him. So it's not necessarily a lower class per se that the novel has an antipathy to. But once it's urbanised, there seems to be a very serious problem with the lower class. And not only here, I mean, this is a political set piece, it's happening outside Parliament. And they've been incited by what they've read in the press in order to take out their anger against the Durkis. This is all from the same uh, chapter. And now we've got how a rumour of the attack got current in the House of Commons. Captain Kadurkis, who's his cousin George, more of whom later. Lord Scrope, who gets named earlier. A few other young men rushed out, as ascertaining the truth, armed with good cudgels and such other effective weapons they could instantly obtain. Could be kind of the way of approval, good, effective. They mounted their forces and charged the nearly triumphant populace. Look again how they're just one mass, not demarcated into any individuals. Dealing such vigorous blows that their efforts soon made a visible diversion in Lord Cadurcus's favour. Again, who are we being encouraged to side with here? Are we being encouraged to actually delectate in the violence being practised against the lower classes? And in this last bit, the culmination of it, so still the fight's going on. So it started with Cadurcus by himself. Then some police constables joined in. Then some young men from Parliament joined in. Now we've got the crests of a troop of horse guards. Everybody ran away. So the mob just dissipates and vanishes, and he's shown to be quite cowardly. When I was reading it, I thought Althusser would have a field day with this because of the repressive state apparatus and the way it escalates from Kadurkis by himself to a few constables to the parliamentarians to the entire military. And we see, too, the establishment mobilises to defend one of its own, a young nobleman, and the lower class, which never succeeds in being anything other than a mob all to itself, simply goes away in the end and runs away having tried and failed to practice violence on Lord Cadurcus. If we think where we are here in historical terms in 1837, we're only a year away from the presentation of the People's Charter. We've had the London Working Men's Association formed um, down where Strand meets Fleet Street, not even far from Westminster. We had the East London Democratic Association at the beginning of 1837, the Birmingham Political Union, which had previously existed but had kind of fallen into disuse, was brought back to life. So think about the time in which the Israeli's writing and how he's representing this urban, increasingly industrialised lower class. Not the lower class per se, because the gypsy community in benign rural Cherbury is fine, but a working class that's urban and starting to be organised and starting to polit be politicised ignites a sense of fear. So we have a set piece in which the establishment mobilises to fight off the, the mob. And if we look at Disraeli's most famous novel, we actually have a fairly similar set piece. What happens in this context is that Sybil is looking for her father and stumbles into a disreputable area of London. The, the horse-drawn cab she's travelling in crashes, and this is what happens. A group immediately form round the cab, a knot of young thieves, almost young enough for infant schools, a dustman, a woman nearly naked and very drunk, and two unshorn ruffians with brutality stamped on every feature. And it's Hogarthian in its 
portrayal of kind of debauchery and violence and threat and danger. And if we consider how this class is represented in Sybil more generally, we have the character, the liberator of the people towards the end of the Sybil, who's just this head of a, of a brutal and destructive working class mob. We have in Sybil the inhabitants of Wadgate, which the Israeli based on parliamentary testimony about Willenhall in the black country, the industrial heartlands of Britain. We have these Londoners eager to accost Sybil. One of them takes her to a door of a brothel saying he's going to take her somewhere safe until she's able to get away. And so we have this same um, visceral fear of the lower classes that we had in Venetia continues through Sybil. And I think we can read that off against what's happening in working class political organisation at the time and the threat that's perceived to pose to the establishment. <coughs> so alongside Kadirkis and Marmy and Herbert, we then have this other character. These quotes are taken from different points, from book one through to book seven, because this character never changes. And he's a military man, he's Captain Kadirkis, he's the cousin to Lord Kadirkis, and where Lord Kadirkis is the visionary, the poet, the dreamer, George Kadirkis is the practical man of action, a military man. When the boat is missing and it turns out in the end they're drowned, it's George Kadirkis who mobilises the search for them. And at the end of the novel, it's George Kadirkis who proposes to Venetia, George Kadirkis who brings her back to England, and he takes up his position as a parliamentarian. Bear with me. But look, notice this shift towards the expedient. So without having any peculiar brilliance of expression, unlike Kadirkis the poet, he was apt and fluent, his whole demeanour characterised by a gentle modesty that was highly engaging. In the, the most obliging and honest-hearted creature that ever lived, a native dignity about him, never in the world was a less selfish and more single-hearted man than George Kadirkis.